0: I'm Carrie Miller. Each week I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I have a question for you. Has anyone arrived tonight with their full complement of joy? Like, I don't need more joy. Don't give me more joy. I don't need anybody. Anybody want to stand up and declare they don't need more joy? Oh, you're a bunch of chickens. Um, I I just have to say that if ever there was an urgent need for joy, right? Third autumn of a global plague, on the eve of an election, in a country fiercely and furiously at odds, dare I go on or no? Okay, you get it. Joy, our guest says, is not some rarefied sanctuary that you achieve in a zen-like state. It's, It's messy, and it's tangled, and it's got pain and suffering and sorrow. Tonight, Roske is bringing delight and exuberance and gladness into the room, and we are so very happy that he's here. His new book is titled Inciting Joy. Please give him the warmest, Welcome to the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. (laughs) Does anybody show up at these with like, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't need more joy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> do you? Do you ever show up going, you know, I've got all the joy that I'm ever going to
1: need? We, yeah, it's funny. Like, or even it's probably good. That's a good question because it gets into that kind of the definition of joy, which I don't think of as thing you get. Right. You know, I think of a thing you kind of enter or join. Right. You know. Um,
0: Tell me more. Well,
1: <clears throat> let me just define in a way, you okay. and, and I can say like the reason I, started writing this book or or like one of the impetuses impetuses impetai was um, I was frequently sort of encountering people you know I have a book called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude it's a book of poems and then this book called The Book of Delights that was nice (laughs) and this other book and um, you know like People would ask the question and they would be like, you know, like everything's going on like this, you know, and like just how can we be talking about joy right now? That question. And to me, I was like, okay, you know, trying to like figure out that thing. And I also and I write about this in the introduction, like especially when young people, young writers, young young people, period, I don't care, would say things like, you know, I've been told by whoever that joy is not a serious emotion implying it's not a rigorous thing, too. Um, and I was thinking, in addition to sort of like less kind things, I was thinking like, um, oh, you have, a, you have the wrong definition of joy. You have a definition of, you, you, you're, what you're calling joy is not joy. And what I think of as joy is something like, you know, for now, something like the light that emanates from us when we help each other carry our sorrows. And given as everyone, my experience anyway, is heartbroken at some point. Everyone. um, It seems to me that joy is one of the things that, you know, given that everyone is heartbroken and we might also kind of practice acknowledging that and tending to that, it seems to me that joy is something that, um, one, is rigorous as hell, because in order to do that, you have to do something. Um, But, two, it's... um, you know, it's a, it's in a way it's sort of available, you know, and I don't, you know, it's sort of like if we're all heartbroken, joy is, yeah, it's something that is available to all of us.
0: You know, I was, I was wondering if, I was reading some cognitive research on this and there is a theory out there that some people have a combination of genes and chemistry, and they just have kind of a biological set point for joy. Mm. And other people don't. And I wonder what you, you're looking, you're looking skeptical about that.
1: I mean, I would wonder what their definition actually of joy is. Oh, yeah. You know, um, right. because, you know, like, I, it's weird, but I, I sort of, it's not weird that I think about these things, but it's weird that I think about these things definitionally. Yeah. And it's weird to me. And I, you know, and I think of things like delight or, or happiness as occasional. It's occurring to me more, like as I try to sort of think harder about these things, as occasional, you know, like you might be, you know, like I was driving up here and I got really good Ethiopian food on the way up. I was really happy about that. It <laughs> delighted me. Uh huh. But it wasn't connected to joy. Um you know it could in some way be connected to joy i suppose but that that feeling of happiness was um was not was not joy so i wonder if that that those researchers talking about genetic this and that are are talking about occasional experiences of like you know someone tells you hey you look cute you know <laughs> out the window you know that made me glad when that woman said something like oh i love your shorts and your whatever huh? <laughs> I put some pep in my step.
0: You're right. <laughs>
1: but I but I I don't know that it was joy, you know.
0: I think as I think about how you're talking about the definition of it, I'm thinking I think people think that if you really know joy that it's not ephemeral, that you like you were saying, you enter into a state and then You're just infused with all this joy, and you know how to recapture it. You exist in this state more than just these fleeting experiences of joy.
1: Well, I wonder about that. You know, I I feel like um, my own experiences—by the way, like a very important essay to this book is Sadie Smith's essay, Joy— um, where she talks about joy as sort of, I don't know if she says it exactly like this, but requires the intolerable yes. for its existence. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think the experience of joy is often, like a reasonable experience of joy is like uh, that you might weep, you know. Um, you know, if someone comes to your aid Mm-hmm. And you are devastated, and you can 't do a thing, and someone comes to your aid. Um, you might weep at the care that you know um, has been provided to you, and the weeping might be evidence you know the, it might have been occasioned by the devastation and the tending that came after it mm-hmm. you know what i 'm saying mm-hmm. so so in a way like that 's another way of sort of i guess i 'm asking the question of like um, I'm just, I'm just continuing to, to call it to question. Like, how does it happen? Do we, you know, like, to be at a sort of permanent, I think you're exactly right. I, it seems to me that joy is a state, like, or joy, joy is sort of, you know, I said this the other day, when I'm going to say it again. Like, there's a beautiful Philip, movie about Philip Glass, and, and he's talking about, like, someone asks him about if he, um, if he ever wonders about where the music's going to come from, whether or not it's going to come. And he says, there's like a river underground, and I can just dip a thing into it. I just know that now. Um, and it feels to me like that's also the case with joy. Um, though I think, I think the question is like, how do, we, how do we practice? I mean, obviously the question of this book is like, how do we incite that mm-hmm. in ourselves? And then the second question is like, what might that incite in each other?
0: How much do you think it's connected
1: with a sense of belonging? huge huge it's yeah it's so it's it's so I'm so glad you said that it was weird like I was in a signing line the other day and someone she was a psychologist I think and someone I can't remember how it came up but she said together we said but she said something I was like oh yeah reading these essays you'd think I totally had this like this would be the first thing I started off on but like that it is it is uh, always about belonging. It is, I don't know, always. I don't, I don't at all. Let me just say too, like I'm not interested in being any kind of like, you know, wise person on joy, just to be clear. i um, not my thing.
0: But we are looking to you for wisdom.
1: Sorry. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, but I got some good similes in here, you know. <laughs> good. Um, but, but the thing is, like, absolutely, like, this, this experience of, of uh, even when I'm talking about this definition, the, the feeling, again, let me use another metaphor, because I can't see you. I'm going to trust that you're there. I can hear you. <laughs> that there's, like, you know, if there were, because there are, something running between us that is something like mycelium in a, in a healthy forest, mm-hmm. you know, and it's there, whether or not we acknowledge it you know, it's there. And to me, in a way, joy is like when it periodically becomes luminous to us. And that might, you know, like you look down and you're like, oh, that's right. We're we're all connected. And that, you know, it happens in all these different ways. You know, I talk about this community orchard that I've been a part of. And that was a moment in my life where it felt, you know, it wasn't like just a happy feeling. It was a feeling of like, and we might get to this too. It's a feeling sort of like falling apart, you know? Um, Yeah.
0: I want to, I want to talk about the orchard a little more in a minute, but it, it really, it makes a lot of sense to hear when you think about that sense of belonging and you think about what can catalyze a sense of belonging, a terrible tragedy, something that we experience collectively or, individually, but you find someone that knows what that what that means and what that is. I mean, a lot of the times if joy equals in some ways a sense of belonging, you're reaching for people at some of the lowest, most difficult times of your life and seeking that belonging,
1: right? Well yeah, I mean given that we all have the lowest most difficult times of our lives often sometimes several times. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're always in in the position to practice that. Right. That experience. And if we trust that each other has the lowest most difficult times of our lives again we're sort of always in the position to practice that. You know, and there's a way too. Like, I also, I also wonder about too. Like the other day, I was walk. Yesterday, I was walking, and I was just like, you know, witnessing. Like one of the things that I think that delights book taught me real good um, is just to be paying attention to these minor caretakings that are perpetually underway, constantly, constantly.
0: Okay, give us you an know. example. What, well, what did you just, see yesterday?
1: I mean, a thousand things, but like, I was walking. One, this is great. Um, did I tell you this? Um, I was reading at the American Writers Museum in Chicago and I came <laughs> came out of, the, out of the elevator and there were three people there, you know, these two women and a younger guy. And um, the guy was like, hey, you want some French fries? <laughs> 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 and I said, no, nah, I'm good. And, um, and then he said, who knew? He said, there are five guys. And I said, oh, yeah. Hell, yeah.
0: So they, Give me those fries. Yeah.
1: They... <laughs> right and it was but it was just such a sort of sweet moment of generosity that was so many things. It was just like, yo, you want to share what I have right, you know, or you know on the way over i was um there was someone in a wheelchair approaching a place that didn't have a uh you know one of the door the door openers, the accessible um handles, and this kid who was wearing the thing so already probably to some degree under the sway of the alienation mechanisms (laughs) not that i have an opinion about that oh what do you mean (laughs) and but saw saw that this person could use a hand with the door and did it and just walked on it was like nothing every day a zillion times a day you know i feel like those i don't know like i i feel like being in the midst of those, and there's something about witnessing those, training one's eyes on those. It feels very important to me and connected to this, this joy thing. I'm not exactly sure how, except, except that I do suspect that part of this understanding that there is, in fact, that, that web between us requires witnessing the ways that it's in evidence all the time, every day.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because you see people so tuned inwardly whatever they're listening to or and they're not doing what you talked about with this i'm observing and witnessing and i'm looking for caretakings and i'm looking for these moments to see you know to see people leaning on one another what i mean when you observe a community you know, on a street, on a given street, and so many people are turned inward. I'm curious about what occurs to you about that.
1: Well, it occurs to me in some part that there is a a concerted effort to alienate us from one another. Yes. Constantly. Um, It feels like our devices, you know, are useful for that, obviously. Um, But it seems like there's other stuff that's really, um, really good at that. Um, And what's remarkable to me is, is despite that, despite this intense you know, pressure for us to kind of um, pay no attention or maybe even be afraid of each other. Mm -hmm. There's all the time. There's people like looking out for each other, you Mm -hmm. know, taking care of each other.
0: Yeah. I want to talk to you about the orchard Yeah, because um, when you, when you discovered this, um, it, it seems like it was somewhat of an open canvas here. It wasn't. It was raw material. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it was at the beginning.
1: This is a the Bloomington Community Orchard is this um, kind of collaborative orchard that exists in Bloomington. If you go there, you should stop by. Um, it's never locked. The gates doesn't have a lock. It was the idea of someone named Amy Countryman, a dear friend. Who, who actually did like an undergraduate thesis project. She was a slightly older undergraduate student and she did a thesis project on like food security and stuff. And she decided to sort of propose an urban orchard. <clears throat> and her advisor was connected to the urban forester. The urban forester said, um, great project. If you can show community support, we'll like let you use this acre across from the YMCA. That's where it is when you come. And, and um, she had this call out I don't know, maybe 100 people showed up and then we very quickly So yeah, there was Wait, wait
0: were you part of the original 100 that showed up?
1: Yeah, I just showed up. Oh. And I want you to know too. I don't know that I would have I-, I heard about it in a newspaper. There's these things called newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy, my buddy, you usually, we used to have a writing group, and we'd get together and do poems and stuff, but this guy, he would always read the sports pages before, and he happened to read some other stuff, and he, he showed me this call-out meeting, which I I probably would have missed, you know, ah. huge. Uh, but anyway, so then we broke into um, teams, and it was huge, it was very non-hierarchical from the start, a lot of consensus, you know, and, um, and then the teams were things like a media team, you know, like people who had to kind of drum up support. And then there was like a uh, maybe an education team and then like the, the site prep team. And that's what I was on. And then we had to like decide what kind of trees we were going to get and what kind of other supplemental plants we were going to get. And, you know, which trees would thrive in our climate and all of this stuff, which meant we had to call in the elders and the people who had more experience and it was multi-generational and it was you know as wonderful a kind of project you know in eight months nine months ten months later there was an orchard planted you know wow yeah wow
0: and what those people some of belonging
1: huh oh my god yeah. you know i was living in i was living in the town for like two years and then i got involved in this project and i knew none of those people before i started and those people some of those people are like you know, my, my dearest friends, you know, um, you know, it was, it was, it was so beautiful. It was so inefficient. It was so (laughs) inefficient. We had these meetings. (laughs) Well, first of all, we had to turn like, um, the site was kind of, um, it wasn't, it was denuded. It was like, you know, just like a lawn. It was was grass. Yeah, it was grass and it didn't have much, uh, tilth to it. And um, so we were constantly making compost. We were turning tons, literal tons of cow shit um, all the time. Hours, hours and hours, you know, you know, 10, 15 hours a week. A lot of us would be doing that. And then there would there were these meetings. And the meetings would be easily three-hour meetings. And, really? Oh, easily, easily. And these were like people, I didn't have kids, but people had kids, you know, so which meant that the meetings required other people to be caring for taking care of stuff so that the stuff could happen. Like, there was so much care that had to happen in order for the stuff to get done. Wow. Um, And, you know, there would be potlucks, and we'd, like, go off track, because we didn't know how to have meetings. (laughs) And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. Yeah. You know, another chapter. This might be one of your questions. It might not be. It might be one of your questions. I'm going to answer it now. Um... (laughs) People ask sometimes, like, what are some of the other chapters you'd write if you didn't get to, if you could write more chapters in this Inciting Joy book. Oh. From your face, it looks like that wasn't one of your questions. That was not one of my questions, no.
0: (laughs) I think that's kind of an odd question, but okay. Two people. Like, I assume you put it all on the page, but no. Okay.
1: And one would be, like, inefficiency and joy.
0: Ah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, now that we're down that road, what about it?
1: Well, it just, again, it's sort of like there's such a kind of, um, such a um, value to efficiency and so much efficiency and streamlining means removing the hands to touch a thing before it gets done. I was thinking like you could like go from a, in a, if you wanted to ride an airplane or ride an airplane, if you wanted to fly somewhere, you could do so much in your life without touching another human being. Yeah. And, and someone somewhere thinks that's a good idea. But that, you know, some people would be like, well, that's streamlined, you know, you you know, cash soon will be no more, you know. Some people think it's a good idea. That's a terrible idea for a lot of reasons that and I'll just leave it on the one level, which is that there's this old thing that we do, which is like hand things back and forth to one another. Um, that matters, you know. Like, the paper menu is actually a valuable thing, if for no other reason. I mean, one thing that's cool about it is that you can point to your friend (laughs) what you might be eating. It's an actual thing. (laughs) The other thing that's important is that you get to hand it back and say thank you, you know.
0: Right. You know, I was curious about whether this, you know, building, being part of the orchard on the ground, on the ground (laughs) level, made you see this community not just the people that you were gathering with, but the character of the community in a different way?
1: Well, I mean, it's a great question. I think, um, I, think I, I, mean, I probably liked my town fine, um, but I think I probably didn't feel necessarily like I belonged there. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably true. And I feel like working on that project, which is so moving for so many reasons, but one of them is that we mostly didn't know each other And we were working on something, an idea that was that was a love. We loved the idea of the call of the orchard was free fruit for all. We loved that idea, and we were joining together to work toward that idea for the benefit of people we couldn't actually imagine. Right? You know? Oh
0: my gosh! Yeah.
1: Um, Some of those people might be us, but some of those you know, some of the people who were instrumental in the orchard are are died in the meantime. In the in the time between the you know the. well, you know, shortly, that, shortly after the planting. It was, like, before the trees were producing, you know? Um, and that's, that's really moving to me. And to get to do a thing like that is, is a, you know, again, it's sort of a profoundly disalienating experience, a profound belonging, experience of belonging, yeah.
0: I mean, you can, you can see what a community values. Yeah. And it had to be really fulfilling to see not only here's the acre, yeah. but here's the support, and here's all these people. And maybe suddenly you see I didn't know much, I don't know how much you knew about Bloomington before you moved there, Indiana, but yeah. suddenly maybe you're seeing it in
1: a whole new way. A thousand percent, yeah. It's like that, that. Um... That ex- I mean again, like I said, like, you know I moved there for work, and I liked it, you know but i don't feel i, I didn 't feel deep in the community, yeah but that experience it not only like changed the my relationship to the town fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, really because in a way I became you know it 's an interesting thing it 's a great question um, the My job was with the university right in a way there 's a way that that those university jobs can sometimes not incline you to be deeply ingrained in the, in the town. There's something, there's something about them, and partly is that a lot of people get the jobs and then they leave, you know? Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I got there. I had friends and stuff, and I was sort of, you know, figuring my way out into being in the town. But that thing of the, the orchard itself changing the, my relationship to the community, in part because it changed for me what I was thinking of as the community, You know, like now I was suddenly like, oh, this community is the place where we build these orchards. Yeah. You know, where we like dream together about people we don't know, but we love them anyway. You know,
0: is there a part of the orchard that exerts a particular gravitational pull on you?
1: Great. That's good. Um, What are you thinking? What do you mean?
0: I guess, I mean, when you walk into this beautiful, lush, quiet place, do you find that you are drawn to a corner
1: or a That's great. Tree Have you been there? Or... It's like you're asking, you know it. That's why I'm asking, like, how, what do you know? You know so much about me. <laughs> <clears throat> I walk in that. the door and I make a left and I go to Mr. Lau's Figs, which I transplanted from my best friend's dad's wow. garden. Yeah. It's What's in the it corner. like? It's in the corner. It's a you know it's a, an abundantly uh, the sort of leaves are very abundant it's it's it has a hard time making fruit we we got to figure that out but it grows beautifully you know it's a very hardy and very um, healthy fig tree that I that I took cuttings of from my best friend Jay's dad's garden back in outside of Philadelphia yeah I always go there and it's like hey Mister Lau how's it going you know
0: that's the other thing I wondered is whether you have a Particular love or appreciation for some of the trees or plants that well, they need some help. Mm. They're not thriving like mm. the show-off apple trees that mm-hmm. produce. You know,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I do. <laughs> I don't think I. Do. I don't
0: care about the under.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a gardener, I'll tell you, um, I'm. I'm. The older I get as a gardener the more practice I'm a baby gardener I've only been doing it like 15 years Um, I feel like I'm learning the things that I'm inclined to grow are the things that really want to grow oh you know
0: why why is
1: that Um, I don't know Um, why do I want I mean there's a kind of like tussle that you know, maybe I'm I'm lazy. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, once you call dandelion a crop, you're a great gardener.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so yeah. true. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you to read the first essay. Yeah. And if you will, tell us a little bit about... Um, a little bit of the context of this essay.
1: And this is the... Uh... From the orchard, yeah, Um, yeah. So I'm sort of talking about this um, um, community orchard, and I'm um, the Bloomington Community Orchard, and I'm at this point in the essay, I'm sort of talking about my ambivalence in a certain kind of way with, uh, um, you know, the footprint that that we put. On the earth, actually, are the way that we sort of linger on after us, which sometimes among you know, like among writer types and other types for sure, other types for sure, people want to do things that last forever, and I'm sort of calling to question whether or not that's a good idea, regardless of what you do. Um, so maybe I'll say start there. And it is a funny thing to realize or to contend with this investment or belief in the future. Because I have been almost ethically disinclined from making plans for the future. Or at least I have fancied myself so. I mean, yeah, right. I eat a lot of greens and exercise and try to remember to floss. I wash down my vitamins, D3 and K2, C and B12, with a quart glass jar of water, with a pinch of salt, lemon, magnesium, <laughs> along with my kettlebells and push-ups and jump rope <laughs> every single day. We could start there. We might say that constitutes planning for the future. Though it's also true, those plans extend only to the hopefully forestalled end of my life. So maybe what I resist or even hate, and the hatred is probably indication that a little bit I want it too, is the imposition of oneself into the future beyond one's lifetime. The fantasy of immortality. The pursuit that I can't help but think of as the outsourcing or offloading of death. Your disprivilege, your destitution, for my life everlasting. I even gave a pretty good talk about this. There's a little essay somewhere. It's called, good title, Body, Musics, and the Empire of Time. And I suggest that maybe it's not such a good idea for us to want to take up space into the future, to impose our art, our lives, our anything through time. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should just do our work for the here and now. Well, I'm afraid we don't really have a choice in the matter. Turns out, bummer. (laughs) What we do in the here and now exists already beneath your boot soles in the future. Look for me there. Look for me when you turn on your air conditioner. Look for me when the hurricane is coming. Look for me as this virus that used to live in the depths of the forest enters your body. Look for me when you're having an asthma attack. Look for me when the parched tree snaps into flame. Look for me as you run, taking only your skin with you. Look for me as you build your boat. Look for me in the wreckage. Or look for me in the orchard. Though I didn't yet have the words for it, planting that orchard, by which I mean, you know this by now, joining my labor to the labor by which it came to be, reminded me or illuminated to me a matrix of connection, of care, that exists not only in the here and now, but comes to us from the past and extends forward into the future. A rhizomatic care I so often forget to notice I am every second in the midst of, by which I came to be and am at all, despite every single lie to the contrary, despite every single action born of that lie. We are in the midst of rhizomatic care that extends in every direction, spatially, temporally, spiritually, you name it, It's certainly not the only thing we're in the midst of, but it's the truest thing by far. Which, well, no duh, when I was leaving the orchard after the planting day, where about 250 people showed up to midwife the trees into the ground, water them, mulch them, a baby I saw dancing on one of them, a couple college-looking kids I saw kissing theirs. I took care of Mr. Louse. I put it in the ground. I replaced the soil. I patted the fig in. Mr. Lau's fig, I patted in like a baby. And I walked out the gate Jack made that had no lock on it. And I hugged and kissed every one of us on my way. Amy, the longest. She brought us here, just as she was brought here. Well, no duh, my eyes filled up. And inside my chest was a lifting off of goldfinch and cardinal and flamingo and a choir of apples and plums and peaches and service berries. And I felt like I was breaking apart into something not me. Because I was beautiful.
2: can cross over so easily What's to become of this trickling stream Answers are only
0: Wow.
2: Wow. Oh my gosh.
0: That was beautiful. But, oh my gosh. That's, that is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Put music to that. Oh, Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate that. So tell me. Tell me about hearing that. <laughs> He's speechless. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Oh, so, oh
1: my, oh God, my God. God! I know damn, that was beautiful. And it also made me think, like the I was actually sort of thinking, well, what is this, like sort of um, the occasion of seeing someone sing so beautifully? Right. And sort of the there's something about performance and like just like stunningly beautiful performance, and also that. Um, I could go on and on but, but it made me think oh there is some way of like being the witness to the body which is always a body changing in time and space um, is always sort of indication of, of that thing you know that thing which is that we are not here forever um, making making that song is is itself a kind of treatise on joy there's something about that you know I was thinking there's god damn that was so beautiful <laughs>
0: It's just great. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theatre. Our guest tonight on our season finale is Ross Gay, and his new book is titled Inciting Joy. Uh, I, I wanna, you and I were talking about something interesting in the downstairs before we came out. You were talking a little bit about the beginning of your, as a poet, getting out there on the road, doing readings... Tell me a little bit about what that was like and then what you learned about yourself in your just determination to see this through.
1: Well, you know, I think it, it was... Um, my first book, Against Which, came out in 2006, and, and that was... W- what we were talking about in part was, you know, the, this kind of tour. I'm on a tour right now, and it's, you know, it's... Um, it's very organized and, you know, like people show up sometimes, you know. <laughs> but, you know, when you're hustling a first book, um, when I was, probably not everyone, and and uh, kind of like there was a cohort of us and it was just the way you did it. Like you just went anywhere. <laughs> you know, if someone like asked you to read at like the birthday party, <laughs> it was almost like that, you know. And so like I was saying that that we would probably read like 50 readings in a year. One of my friends, I think, had 180 readings the year his book came out, you know. A book of poetry. A book of poems, yeah. yeah. In part because poems get moved. You sell poems when you give readings, you know, for the most part. Um, and we wanted to share our work, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, but, okay, so that's kind of what it was like. Yeah. Now what did you learn about yourself with, I don't care if it takes five more years of 50 readings a year. You know, I, I want people to hear these poems. So what did you learn about yourself on that?
1: You know, um, probably many things. I don't, I don't know about, like, determination or any of, any of those things. I'd have to think harder about that. But one thing that I do think I can say I learned for sure is, like, something about listening to an audience, you know? Like, when you read a lot, if you you know, you, you learn how to hear an audience hearing. Um, I think that's what people who can perform a little bit mm-hmm. can do. And if you give like 50 readings in a year, sometimes those readings are like to two people, literally one of them's your best friend, you know, <laughs> and the other person's who invited you, <laughs> by the way, by the way, I want to have, I'm never going to have a podcast, but if I did, um, maybe I will. Um, I, I would, uh, one podcast periodically I have these ideas um periodically I have an idea and a a podcast idea would be like just people coming on and talking about their worst reading the worst (laughs) reading they've. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god because they can be so they're just great stories you know like stuff that you couldn't imagine and then it's like wait and then so you did another reading next week like you didn't hang it up Everyone just keeps on reading. We just all take it. Well, what is your worst experience? I don't know about my that? worst. Like I've I've made some errors in my choice of, of reading material. <laughs> um, okay. Like what? Well, one time I read a uh, a uh, an essay that is a to me it's a really moving essay from the book of delights and it's called Coco Baby and it's about um it's basically about witnessing catching sight of myself putting coconut oil on my body. Um. And and it and it becomes a kind of um, witnessing of of uh, a kind of care for one's for self, whom one so often is not nice to, mm-hmm. and um, and I use, I say testicles twice and I say penis I say you know, um, which with adults is like not a big thing. Yes. And I read it at this thing called the Dodge Poetry Festival in, um, in New Jersey on high school day. It was such a weird... <laughs> it was such a weird choice. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I was like, ah, you know, because I have a little bit of like, like a little thing of like wanting to be naughty. So it's like, it's a poetry festival. I'm going to read an essay. And to me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this essay that's going to really connect with these children. And... <laughs> And. I swear to you, I swear to you. I mean, it was huge. It was probably like 800, you know, it was probably like 800. It's like, it's a big, it was the biggest reading I've ever, ever given. <laughs> but I have another one too. God, I have another terrible reading story too. And I'm going to tell it. Yeah. I'm going to tell it. Good. But, but I, so the first time I get to testicles, they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You hear it in the audience, you know? And then <laughs> I say testicles again. I'm like, yo, yo, easy. <laughs> And then by the time they say penis, they're like, no! Ah! <laughs> but, you know, I just had to, like, go through it. I just had to do it, you know? Oh,
0: my gosh. But this funny. other
1: reading I gave, it's one of my favorite readings. Um, oh, I write about it in this book. <laughs> it was such a weird choice also. It was, it was for a uh, fundraiser for, the, um, like, the biggest kind of food pantry in, in our town, and it's a big event. It's a really big event. And it's called the Soup Bowl. And I didn't know how big of an event it was, but I think maybe also like hundreds and hundreds of people. It could be 600 people. It's a lot of people. And it, you know, like maybe not exactly my audience, the people who I'm used to kind of, who kind of go with me. It was like people who were there actually for the fundraiser. They weren't there for me. Yeah. <laughs> and they asked me to do it. They're like, yeah, Russ Gay's a Poet in Town. And you read a thing. <laughs> So I had this essay, I have this essay, and it's, it's called, uh, what's the title of it? it might, the title of it might be, Steve Jobs, I swear to God. <laughs> that might be the, the title of the essay. And then that's the subject of the essay. <laughs> 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 when I, you know, like some places that'd be a hit, you know? I got, off, I got off the stage and I'm used to people like after I read for the most part, you know, giving me like a good job look, you know. I remember there was a guy sitting right there like a, like a you know, man, he was just like, he wouldn't even look at me. He was glaring past me. He was glaring <laughs> like that. <laughs> and then I got back to the table and I told my partner, I was like, hey, uh, I think that was the wrong one to read. <laughs> <laughs> and she said... Ah, you did a good job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what you want. She's got yeah. your back. Um, I, I want to ask you about what you've written about teaching, because mm. as, as noted when we were chatting beforehand, it's so candid and it's... I mean, I think a lot of teachers would, would say it privately, but not the way you say it. So, um,
1: hmm.
0: you know, what, one of the things I was curious about in hmm. reading that... You write um, about how teachers struggle to hang on to their joy, mm-hmm.
1: and there's a teacher laughing over there. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: how many teachers are in the room tonight? Oh. Okay. Good. Yeah, you got to read that. And then, <laughs> um, you know, what I wondered is what what happens, and you know this firsthand. What happens to you know all the idealism and the delight and joy that a new teacher enters the classroom mm. with in the beginning.
1: I, I can say what happens for me, um, and, and I want to say too before I even get started that this this thinking in this essay is like really in con- deep in conversation and kind of riffing on a, on a book called "The Undercommons" by Stefano Harney and Fred Moten that completely changed my life and has still changed my life. Um. It's my experience was that you know it took me like a couple years to realize like wait there's something miserable about this really Um, yeah you know I don't know why you know because I like the insurance I like the salary I like the insurance Um, and I I slowly started realizing it was and I didn't I wasn't realizing I was realizing I was feeling it I guess that's the word for that and I would. when it was grading time, especially, I would be miserable and I would feel guilty and I would feel like bad about myself and I would feel, and I'd be partly because I would be like, and I, well, I can just say why, because I was spending a lot of time trying to um, figure out how to detract points from human beings. Wow. And then I was sort of like, you know, as I started, you know, got exposed to, you know, Harney and Moton's work, and then, like, of course, other people who have been important to me. Noam Chomsky, like, talks about education and, like, you know, the failures of, of, of certain kinds of schooling um, and other people who are important to me. I started to realize, like, oh, this, um, this grading situation, not only the grading thing, but, like, this sort of um, compulsion to evaluate is really a, a compulsion to, like, fix and the compulsion to fix is the compulsion is requires that, you know, everyone's um, in a way they're wrong, you know, that they're wrong. And um, and so the rubrics, I was starting to witness my rubric. I would teach these big 100, 105 student intro to creative writing classes. And I'd have, you know, assistant TAs and we would have these meetings and the meetings would effectively be, and I'd, I had, because it was a big class and I had TAs, I had to write like a very, very detailed syllabus, which is not my, actually my mode. And uh, uh, like really not my mode. <laughs> and um, I realized that really what I was, the sort of main emphasis was like figuring out how we could dock the students. Wow. That was the main thing. You know, like what they learned was really, actually what they learned was, way secondary. The real thing was like, well, how can we grade them? And when we say, how, how can we grade them? It was like, how can we knock points off of their scores? And that that just felt bad. That just felt bad.
0: But you, but you also have some pretty candid things to say about the students themselves and maybe what the uh, infrastructure of teaching does to them. I mean, you say, as far as I can tell, at least in school and school-adjacent activity... They are used to and perhaps most comfortable with being told what to do and told what to be. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I would say we, because I was a student too. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's sort of the result of a particular kind of teaching where the objective is not to learn, but the objective is to do what the instructor wants you to do or what the test needs you to do or the, mm. whatever needs you to do. You know, if there's a kind of if there's a kind of um, if you're rewarded for doing the thing that you're told to do the best, that's you know, a certain kind of kid is going to do that mm-hmm. and do that really well. Um, the other thing about the grading that is just miserable to me, um, and I don't know if it this was probably came later, um, is that it's it's compelling people to compete in the class, which doesn't feel... I mean, I should just say it like this. Actually, I started to realize at some point I was like, oh, okay, so the essay is called Dispatch from the Ruins, and it's a riff on this, uh, also a riff on a really beautiful book by Anna Singh called Mushroom at the End of the World, I think. Um, um, Something, something in late capitalist ruins is what it's called. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book. And... um, But I realized there's this thing, like, what, how do you teach if you're, if you're teaching in a kind of collapse? Right. Like, you know, whatever, there's many collapses happening many times all around in various ways, but say there's a kind of collapse or several collapses, um, we're in the midst of, do I want to teach my students to do exactly what I think they should do? Okay. No, I don't. Um. Do I want to teach my students to try to steal the best grades from their neighbors? No, I don't. What I want to teach them to do is to um, care about one another. Mm -hmm. That's like the main thing. If I want them to care about each other and like make really cool, make beautiful stuff, you know, it's a different story. Grading has nothing to do with that. There's no no way that the grade... (laughs) could factor usefully into that requirement for the class I'd love to hear someone try to convince me otherwise and I'd be open to it I'd really be open to it but I've thought about a lot of the ways and I don't think it works I don't think it works so the way you solved this
0: was to follow the lead I think of some other teachers and everybody gets an A
1: yeah everyone gets A's and you know like I say in the essay like if I could flick a button and no grades that's what we do you know but everyone gets an A. And then you just, from the start, and then, like, what? Now we can actually do stuff. It's amazing, <laughs> you know? We can actually do stuff. Like, you can actually... Another thing that a classroom is, is interesting to me for, like, a sort of dreamy classroom, is, like, a place where we're sort of mutually bewildered. And we can care for each other's bewilderment, you know? And tend to each other's bewilderment. Which you don't do by telling people they gotta do something in a specific way. You actually kill their bewilderment. Boy, you that's
0: know. really profound. It, it is. It makes, when you put it like that, it makes so much sense. And there's so little room for that in education. Totally. Well, I mean, in daily life, pretty much. In daily right?
1: life. In daily life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Another beautiful essay, book, but essay uh, called Bewilderment by Fanny Howe. I recommend it.
0: And by Richard Powers.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Pretty cool too. Okay, yeah. um, I'd like you if you uh, would read a poem and oh, yeah. um, if you'll tell us a little bit about how you chose this. I asked. I think we gave you three, yeah. and you chose this one.
1: Yeah, this is called "Sorrow Is Not My Name," and I thought it was kind of interesting because um, actually, in in uh, I'm not going to ruin it. But the next thing that you want me to read, um, which I want to read, (laughs) it's okay, it's okay, (laughs) Um, is also about sorrow. um, But I think this is an interesting sort of maybe conversation about it. I thought that when you asked about it. It's called Sorrow is Not My Name, and it's after um, a Gwendolyn Brooks poem um, called To the Young Who Want to Die, um, which... I cite almost the whole poem in, my, in, in, the, in the Sorrow essay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. well done. Um, sorrow is not my name. No matter the pull toward brink, no matter the florid deep sleep awaits, there is a time for everything. Look, just this morning a vulture nodded his red grizzled head at me and I looked at him admiring the sickle of his beak. Then the wind kicked up and... After arranging that good suit of feathers, he up and took off. Just like that. And to boot, there are on this planet alone something like two million naturally occurring sweet things. Some with names so generous as to kick the steel from my knees. Agave, persimmon, stickball, the purple okra I bought for two bucks at the market. Think of that. The long night, the skeleton in the mirror, The man behind me on the bus taking notes, yeah, yeah. But look, my niece is running through a field calling my name. My neighbor sings like an angel, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember, my color's green. I'm spring.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Mm. This came up when we were chatting is um, somehow these essays and your poetry about joy and delight never sound gooey or indulgent. Or I mean, I guess you have such a finely, finely tuned ear for that or how do you avoid it? How do you think about
1: it? I don't know that I'm thinking about the gooey, um, but um, I'm thinking about us dying. That's kind of the thing, you know? I wonder if that's the thing. It's sort of like, oh, okay, that's like... Like, I'm never... I love bunnies. I'm never just talking about bunnies, you know? I'm never just talking about the persimmon. Right. You know? Yeah. No. That's yeah. not enough. Well, I think it, the sentimental or the gooey, there's a kind of, there's a million ways that we sort of, um, that would require that. You know, and I think, again, I think that that original question I was sort of talking about, that person saying, like, how can you write about joy or how can you be thinking about joy at a time like this? I think their relationship to the idea of joy is a kind of sentimental gooey yes. notion of joy. Yeah. And if you're talking about as, as I am, I think at nearly every turn, the fact that we're going to die. That's what I'm talking about, you know? And so when I'm talking about joy, I'm not talking about like, again, I'm not talking about the a kind of simplified or what I think of as like a um, childish, immature um, notion of like happiness and, you know, like achievement and like accomplishment and like getting stuff. I'm not talking about that. Like I'm talking about how we tend to each other in the midst of our dying, which is ongoing, ever ongoing. Um, it i don't know you know it just feels like that's not inclined to gooiness <laughs>
2: <laughs> no.
0: no that's true i was i was looking for this note that i made about um, your sweet aunt butter that you put into one of your essays oh, yeah. <laughs> um she i mean what she talks about what what is it if you're laughing you're dying or i'm dying get over here or tell me a little bit about
1: Yeah, that's so. It's great.
0: It's such a great contrast, and I got it instantly. Were you able to find it? Yeah, I'll just read that paragraph. Great. Okay.
1: Um, (laughs) This is an essay on laughter, and I'm sort of. It starts off with my buddy Dave, um, who makes me laugh a lot, um, telling me that when I laugh, I look like I'm dying. (laughs) And you can imagine that's a pretty good point of departure for. My consideration of joy. Um, My sweet Aunt Butter, who is 94, please tell no one I told you that, and has chronic lung disease is, well, usually when you're 94, you are dying more clearly than when you are, say, 24 or, say, 48. Laughed when we talked on the phone recently and told me I needed to get out there to see what it was like getting old like that, which a lot of our people do. I think she meant living long, yes, but she also meant dying long. Her whole generation of siblings is alive. None anymore. Two are gone. Two are left. Oh. Huh. The baby is 90, the eldest 98, though the generations below have not fared quite as well. My father died at 58 and his babiest brother at 35. A cousin my age, gone. Others of us younger is pretty banged up. Aunt Butter coughed, said, I ain't meaning I'm weak, I'm dying. Then she laughed and coughed a little more and giggled and said, you have to come see this, baby. This might be you.
0: Oh, that's just great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, You also write about how joyful your mother's laughter is. And I (laughs) I just, I want to read this. This is hilarious. She puts (laughs) her head into her hand and starts gasping. She'll try to talk and she might drool a little, Tears will run down her face. Her voice gets high and wispy. <laughs> she is in the throes. She is a leaking sack of delight.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. That's so good. You know I was thinking about as I read that? You know, my mother's, the side of my mother's family made a lot of um, home movies. Ah. Uh... And in most of those movies is like an experience of this. Somebody just starts laughing and it's contagious. And it just reminded me of how um, meaningful watching that is and how fleeting and ephemeral that moment was and we didn't know it.
1: Totally. Oh, my God. so beautiful.
0: Do you have home movies of your family? My Uncle Bennett,
1: who's 100, was an avid movie taker. And so... Hopefully, I'll be able to like share with my cousin, have access to those movies. I remember, I remember at my uh, uncle Keith's funeral, him taking taking movies and um all the time when we'd be out there in Youngs this is in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, yeah, God, I have to tell you when you said that, I was like, oh, if that was my home movies. That I had access to, I'd be, I'd be like writing books where I'm just describing. Really? Yeah, I'd just be like, because even as you were reading that about my mother, and I just finished another essay where I realized I described the ways my friends laugh. Mm-hmm. There's something, there's something so lovely about the description of people's laughter, wow. and it kind of invokes, la- it kind of evokes, la- it makes you laugh. Yeah. You know, it makes you want to laugh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, One last essay? Yeah. Great.
1: So this is in a a long, the longest essay in the book, actually. It's called Grief Sweet. Um, And it kind of starts off as a, it starts off as an essay ostensibly about, you know, it starts off in in football, actually. Um, But it's kind of, football, masculinity, grief, et cetera. And at this point, I think I'm sort of trying to relate, consider my, my, um, my mother's grief when my father died, which was also my own grief when my father died, and my grief at my mother's grief. The griever knows or comes to know again and again That it's not only my beloved friend, grandchild, dog, lover, tree, sibling, auntie, teacher, parent, relationship, belief, home, glacier, species, that is changed or gone. Because when that one thing changed, everything changed. Light through the trees in October, now different. The sound of the playground. Making love. Pushing the cart through the aisles of the store. Dreams the Eagles game on Sunday, holidays, a walk by the river, celebration, changing the sheets, taking a nap, cooking a meal, reading a book, the future, the past. All of it has changed. That is what the griever is metabolizing, which metabolizing how everything has changed is not, how could it be, obedient to a clock or calendar nor a mandate to move on or snap out of it or get over it or pull oneself together it seems to me that grief is not gotten over it has gotten into and the griever teaches us or reminds us there is no pulling it together there are only degrees or expressions of falling apart because grieving alert to connection luminous with it is never only one person's experience in fact I think it is the case that grieving or the griever, consciously or not, connects to all of grief and to all grievers, and which is perhaps why there are some traditions in which the griever is held in constant vigil for a long time. Those traditions understand the griever is entering the oceanic sorrow, is drifting into it. And those traditions know, connected as we are, we are obligated to keep an eye on each other as the waters of grief close behind us which serves little purpose for, or maybe more to the point, is a logjam or a barricade or maybe even more to the point, a threat to a culture, a country, a net of stories, a way that has canonized the story of the rugged individual, the self-made, the need-nothing, bootstrapping, solitary conqueror dude, a culture that will do anything to preserve that story, which conveniently obscures the systemic, patently false though it is, the need-nothing, a figment of the nightmare imagination. Because, among other things, you know, get back to work. But just as important to the prohibition on grief, I suspect, no, no, I believe, is the understanding that what the grievers bring back to us, in addition to the ways their wet faces carry the light, is the fact that if we become likewise infected or subsumed, which can happen at any moment, indeed it ought to, right now, right now, right now, right now, terrifying though it is, everything will change, and for good.
2: I need y'all to sing this one with me. Unapologetically, sing it again. Unapologetically, one more time. Unapologetically, this is the actual last time. <laughs> Unapologetically, yeah. I'm not explaining myself too much anymore. The tears I cry ain't up for discussion. The threads that I see connecting all things are magic and golden. Tired of folk looking at me, not seeing the shiny and pretty is shitty, not glowing. This firework is also fireside, and if you know it, you know it. So I'll stand here and be, be all of me. Here we go, unapologetically. This light that you see will keep. Here we go, unapologetically. Here we go, unapologetic. Keep on shining. Here we go, Unapologetically. Even while I'm crying. Here we go, Unapologetically. while I'm dying. One more time, unapologetic. I ain't afraid of what makes home in the shadow. And I don't believe in letting no sleeping dogs lie. Cause I'm tired of the lying, tired of biting.
0: Thank you.